But the best thing that could happen for you is to fall. The best thing that could happen to you is for you to get fired from your job. For you to lose everything you own and have to make a comeback where you're actually honest. To make a comeback where you actually face the music, where you don't have to wake up every day worried about who's looking at your cell phone, or worried about who's gonna get to the mail first, or worried about what you're gonna say to another coworker, or what's gonna come out. Like living your life underneath the constant fear that somebody's gonna find out that you're an addict, or that, or that you're addicted to, to drugs or porn, or you're a closet drinker who puts vodka in his orange juice bottle every morning before he gets to work like living your life like that is crushing and for some of you like you you are on the precipice and you're running and you're exhausted if that clip describes you then what you're about to hear is your warning signal it's a possible foreshadowing to what's to come next Please have a listen to this message from Pastor Sean titled, Between Two Rivers, or as we could also call it, the prequel to Pastor Sean's Fall. There's just something about us that loves to celebrate success. We idolize, immortalize, even deify the people we watch, listen to, or follow. Celebrities, actors, actresses or athletes, bands, singers or musicians, models or influencers. We love a great success story, a meteoric rise, a story of someone who comes out of nowhere, whether it's Billie Eilish exploding onto the scene after recording songs with her brother in her bedroom, or for us here in Green Bay, Rasul Douglas being signed mid-season and having like a Pro Bowl caliber season after being released by multiple other NFL teams. We love watching those stories. We love talking about them. And I think in many ways, we identify with those stories. We identify with those people. We, we maybe even take credit for them a little bit. Like, oh, I followed her on social before anyone had ever even heard of her. Or, bro, I knew that he was a baller. He was a great player while he was still in college. We somehow connect ourselves to those people. There, there isn't much we love in America more than the success of an underdog. Uh, the Rudy Rudigers of the world, who after making one play was carried off the field at Notre Dame under the watchful eye of touchdown Jesus showered in chants of Rudy. We love stories where someone no one expected to succeed is thrust into a moment of glory. What we don't love is when someone we expected to succeed doesn't. When someone falls in a blaze of glory, we we don't want to identify with those stories. We don't want to identify with those people. We don't want to connect ourselves to those people. We almost never take credit for them. We, We loathe stories where Someone everyone expected to succeed is thrust into a moment of shame. We, we love being surprised by success, but hate being surprised by failure. But I'd like to propose to you today, and hopefully it'll be a theme throughout this series, that just as no one ever succeeds alone, no one ever fails alone. I want to talk about that today in a message we're calling Between Two Rivers. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for my friends in this place. God, in this place, on this side of the screen, and wherever they find themselves on the other side of the screen. God, thank you for the people who you've made a part of our family. I pray blessings on them. I pray that every 
person who hears this message would be encouraged. People who are suffering, people who are struggling, fighting, trying to figure out how it is to make it from point A to point B. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be melted, that they would be molded, that they would be made to be less like us and more like you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's certainly no shortage of success stories in America, is there? From inventors to influencers, this nation was founded and has been formed by people who followed a dream that didn't only change their lives, but changed ours too. Like Bill Gates, pioneering the personal computer in a garage in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and the explosion of influence that springboarded him to becoming one of the richest people in the world, and for a period of time, put a personal PC in almost every home in America. Unfortunately, though, there's also no shortage of stories of failure in America. People whose fall didn't only change their lives, but changed ours as well. Like Kurt Cobain, pioneering grunge in a garage in Seattle and the explosion of success that made him one of the biggest rock stars in the world and the implosion of influence that spiraled him into distress and depression that for a period of time made him the poster child for suicide. Success and failure, they're so closely related. They're separated by such a thin line. They're often separated by just a few decisions one way or the other. And the bigger the success or the bigger the failure, the harder it is for the man in the street to relate to it. But can I tell you, you and I are closer to either than we think. We are closer to either than most of us want to own or even admit. What's really sad to me is that we've seen lots of people rise and we've seen lots of people fall. But it's not very often that we see someone rise after the fall. Maybe it's because just as fast as some people jump on the bandwagon of someone's success, those same people jump off that person's bandwagon even faster when that person experiences a failure or a fall from grace. And we're so definitive in our expulsion or our excommunication of people who have fallen or failed. But like I said in the promo of this series, my pastor Fulton Buntain, he used to say that failure is never final. Your fall doesn't have to be fatal. I'd actually like to make a case that those of us who've had a failure or who've had a fall but had the fortitude to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, own our mistakes, admit our failures, and embrace the fall, come back stronger than those who hadn't. They, we come back stronger than we did before. It's, it's the difference between Nixon and Lincoln. Uh, Nixon had tons of successes. I mean, by the age of 40, he had already achieved the rank of lieutenant commander with the United States Navy. He'd been elected to Congress and the Senate and become the vice president of the United States of America. As president, he opened up communications to China, reduced tensions with the former Soviet Union. He ended U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. He established the EPA and OSHA. He started the war on cancer, and he oversaw putting a man on the moon. Then Watergate. And after that fall, we didn't hear much from him. In fact, we almost forget all of his successes because of failure. Lincoln, on the other hand, lost his job and his run for state legislature in 1832. 
He failed in business in 1834, lost his wife in 1835, had a nervous breakdown in 1836, was defeated for Speaker of the House in 1838, was defeated for Congress in 1843 and 1848. He was rejected for the office of land manager in 1849, was rejected for Senate in 1854 and the nomination of Vice President in 1856. He lost another run for Senate in 1858, but then, I don't know if they just ran out of people, but in 1860, he was elected president of the United States of America. Talk about a rise after the fall. And I relate to that. I actually feel like I relate to both of those guys. I, I, I feel like what's interesting is that because Nixon ended in failure, we don't remember any of his successes. But because Lincoln ended in success, we seldom remember any of his failures. It, it feels like my life was littered with rises and falls. Uh, I had the misfortune of being born into a rough environment. I, 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 you, I, you just, where, you, where you're born, you don't get to control that. I'm pretty sure that my neighborhood was fine when my parents moved there, but by the time I was born, it wasn't. My dad and his steadfastness had the attitude that I was here first, and so we just sucked it up. I grew up with all sorts of foolishness around me, violence and crime and drugs. And I went to a challenging school in elementary school. And uh, I had a, a monumental moment in the first grade. And it sounds trite when you haven't lived it. You think, what could possibly happen in first grade that changed your life? All of kindergarten and halfway through the first grade, I got, I got bullied by the same kid. And when I say bullied, I mean that... Uh, he, he had a group of kids that he used to run around the, the, the playground with, and every day they would, they would catch me. They would surround me. And like you saw in the movies, you know, they, like one guy would push me to another guy to another guy until, until the one guy, the main bully guy, his name is Corey Rolls. I'll never forget his name for the rest of my life. He would like come out of nowhere and like cold cock me. And then they would just, they would just stomp me all of recess. And one day, halfway through the first grade, I just, I got sick of it. And I, I had like a John Wick moment, if you've seen that movie. You know, like, I don't mean I killed nobody because they killed my dog, but I'm talking about like, you know, when you have one of those moments where you kind of black out and you don't know what in the fire is going on. And so I just like blacked out and I snapped. And the, for the rest of my life through elementary school and kindergarten, uh, elementary school and high school, I, I and Corey Rose switched places. And I... I went from being bullied to becoming the bully. I went, I became a predator. I became a person who felt like I needed to, to keep myself out of trouble by putting other people in it. My whole life was surrounded by criminals. I mean, I had, uh, I had people in my family that, that were incarcerated. It just felt like that was part of my DNA, like it was gonna be part of my, my destiny. In eighth grade, I got a little break. And uh, I got invited to attend a charter school that they had just opened up to kids in my neighborhood. And me and my one best friend, we went to that school. We had to walk 45 minutes one way to get there. And, and to get there, we'd have to walk through these like uh, crazy nice neighborhoods. I'm talking about like multi-million dollar homes. And I remember I had two responses to walking through those houses. Number one, I wanted to rob them. <laughs> then number two, I thought, well, I don't want to rob them. I want to be them. 
And I would walk through these houses and they would motivate me. They would give me these dreams of what I could be someday, that I didn't have to be a convict, that I didn't have to be a criminal, I didn't have to be a, a drug addict or a drug dealer, that the, these people somehow became that some way. And so for four years, every day I would walk through neighborhoods and, and even though I didn't know God, God would expand these thoughts and these dreams in my life. In ninth grade, I met a guy who changed my life both for the good and for the bad. His name was Bob Miller. He was the varsity football coach, and he, he kind of took me under his wing, and, and he mentored me, and he coached me, and uh, he got me out of a lot of trouble. I would skip class, and he would get me out of that. I, I would cause trouble in the school, and he would go to the principal, and he would get me out of it, which I thought was amazing at the time, but later on, I would discover that it was starting a pattern in my life where if you were talented, people didn't care if you had integrity. And so people would cut corners and they would allow you to cut corners on the integrity pieces of your life as long as you could perform for them and as long as that performance stayed the course and as long as you didn't do anything that was so bad that it affected how people saw them, they would let you get away with whatever you wanted. I went to college, I was blessed, I was fortunate that I got to go to a great school on a football scholarship and the same thing happened. I was a, I was a problem child, but they would let me off with stuff because they were like, bro, as long as you can perform, we'll keep giving you scholarship money and food money and, it, and, and then one day I did something that was too far. At some point everybody does something that's too far. My roommate and I is from Seattle. He played uh, quarterback, and, and we decided that we were going to rob somebody. And so we, we did that. We got caught. And some of you know the tidbits of this story. We got caught. I got sentenced to 15 years in the Minnesota State Pen, served 111 days, and walked out because of overcrowding. Long story short, I ended up at a little school in North Dakota that I didn't know was a Christian school, but it was a Christian school. The first guy that I showed up on campus and met, I asked him where I could buy dope, and he told me that I didn't need dope, I needed Jesus, but to me, I had just driven 18 hours, so I needed some dope. And so I went downtown, I bought a nickel bag of weed, I got smoked out in the dorm rooms of Trinity Bible College of the Assemblies of God. That was one of the times I got kicked out. I got kicked out of that Christian school two times. One was because I got high in the dorms, I didn't know that that was unacceptable. And, and after the second time that I got kicked out, I was singing at a friend's wedding and the president of the school was in the audience and he came up to me after the wedding and, and he said, bro, I didn't know that you could sing like that. And, and he said, I would love it if you would travel with me and before I preach at churches, if you would warm up the crowd and you would sing. And I said, I said, hey doc, uh, I don't go to school here anymore. They kicked me out, I got high in the dorm rooms. He said, let me take care of that. It was another example of if your talent is enough, they'll exchange your talent for their integrity. I, I went four years at that school. I, I, I really wasn't a great believer. I was just really talented. And my talent always made opportunities in places that my character couldn't keep me. And for years, I had success in, in ministry until, until my talent took me to a place that it couldn't sustain me. Uh, I took a church in Detroit and, and the church was, uh, it was small, it was dying. The, the pastor before me had stolen three and a half million dollars before he walked out the door. The church didn't know about it. We had to figure out how to fix it, how to bring this thing back from the brink, how to have people not lose everything that they had invested. Man, we had board meetings every night 
for three and a half hours, five nights a week. It was the most taxing, toiling thing ever. And the lack of integrity in my life finally got to a point where Sonny couldn't take it anymore. And she came to me one day and she said, uh, I'm taking our kids and I'm leaving. I'm going to file for divorce. Listen, there's a lot of jobs you can have and get divorced. Like if your dentist is divorced, you don't go, I don't trust him to put a crown on my teeth. He just goes, can he put crowns on teeth? Cool, whatever, it was personal life, whatever, bro. When a pastor gets a divorce, you're like, nah, listen, Jack, <laughs> that's enough. And so I, I went to my board of, of our church and I said, hey, I uh, just want you to know this, this is gonna be my last Sunday. Um, Sonny's taking my kids. She moved to Florida with her parents, and, and uh, I think we're going to get a divorce. Hand to God, the board of that church. And let me explain why. That church, when we took it, was like 300 people, and in like five months, it went from like 300 people to 900 people, and it was booming, and people were getting saved every week, and they were tripping, and, the, and so the head of the board looked at me, and he said, well, why do you have to resign? Can you, can you just stay? I said, maybe, maybe you didn't hear what I said when I came in here, like Sonny's left me. She's, she's filing for divorce. She took my kids. She's in another state. It was another example of your talent causing people to overlook the holes in your life. I couldn't do it, y'all. I just walked away. I said, I don't ever want to be in ministry. I want to be married more than I want to be in ministry. And so I went and got, grabbed my wife and grabbed my kids and a friend of ours directed us to a counseling program in a little town maybe you heard of called Green Bay, Wisconsin. So we moved our family here to a, a house uh, that, that didn't have heat. I didn't have a job. Sonny didn't have a job. She got a job at a coffee shop. And I spent uh, six months with no job. I was a blogger, to be fair. That's what men call themselves when they're unemployed and are too embarrassed to admit it. I wrote exactly one blog and four people read it. I think it was me four times. <laughs> but in those six months, can I tell you that I read this book cover to cover for the first time in my entire Christian walk. I had been a pastor for 15 years. I hadn't read the whole thing. I got to know my kids. I got to discover that I didn't need internet or I didn't need cable, that I really just needed Jesus. And I, I, literally, I literally found Jesus at the bottom of a pit. I lost everything. I lost my money. I lost my reputation. I lost my cars. I lost my home. I lost everything. But I found my family and I found Jesus. And I, I sat in a, in a living room with no heat in Green Bay in the middle of the winter and I said to God, I don't ever want to go back into ministry, but, but if you ever ask me to, I don't really care if we're successful. Uh, if I never pastor more than 100 people, but I have a good marriage and my kids love Jesus, then that's all I care about. Well, at the time, I was on the teaching team at a church in Houston, Texas of 20,000 people, <laughs> making over $100,000 a year, speaking to a room that had 10,000 theater seats. It's easy to say to God, if, if I only pastor 100 people, God's like, oh, really? Because I got somebody who's fit to call you. And some cat from Green Bay called me back. He said, hey, remember you used to live here? Yeah, this is good. Yeah, got this church. Pastor left. We're going to close it down. About 100 people. We want you to come. <laughs> so I did. 
December 17th of 2012, God just said, listen, I'm going to take you somewhere. I'm going to take you to the very place where you found health. I'm going to take you to the very place where you discovered that these people, they'll love you whether they know if you're talented or not. They're going to love you to the place of health. And so we came here, we had gone through this counseling program that was intense, that strips you down to the heart of who you are. We call it Journey to Wholeness. Back then, it was called Freedom Life Skills, and we discovered that every person has a moment of trauma that causes fixation in them or it causes them to become arrested in development in that one very trite moment in first grade when Corey Rolls and I switched places literally impacted my entire life. It caused me to become somebody who I wasn't, to do things I shouldn't do, to say things that I shouldn't say. And when that scab was peeled off, suddenly the power of the Holy Spirit rushed into my life. It's why the Apostle Paul says, and you shall be, re be restored by the renewing of your mind. And everything in my mind was switched and it was changed. And I, I spent the better part of six months really just studying people in the Bible, trying to find somebody who was great. And you know, I discovered that uh, People have a problem with people who fail. I was one of them. I lost all my friendships, all my relationships, except for two. Pastor Barry, who's here, and my friend Alan Griffin, who you've met many times. It was, I was left with two people in my life. And uh, I came to this realization that people just don't want to talk about failure. And I thought, why? So let's do a whole series about it. And Sonny goes, you're kind of running a risk where you're going to have like seven weeks of messages from people who failed, like had affairs and stole money and one of them murdered someone like that. Really? You're going to do that? That's risky. I go, I, why? Why is that risky? Everybody in here has failed. Every one of you has been a mess up. You've been a royal screw up most of your life. You don't want to admit it. You don't want people to know it. And so I said, who better than to bring a bunch of screw-up pastors who have fixed the problem and have come back? I mean, it's better than having their state farm agent come and talk to them from the stage. This is a guy who he's used to standing in front of people. And so we're going to have like seven weeks of people who are total screw-ups. And you know what? Some of you are going to get pissed off about it. And that's okay. And those are you who haven't read this book. Because there's nobody in this book outside of Jesus who you'd want your daughter to marry. I'm just telling you, they're all mess ups. Everybody, everybody in this book has done something stupid. They've murdered someone or stolen something or lied or sold their wife into prostitution. What, Abraham? Are you kidding me? She's your, it's your wife. She's your, oh yeah, you can have her. There's just a bunch of losers in this book is all I'm saying. And so all of their stories are this. They were total screw ups who God got a hold of and then the second half of their life is this rise out of obscurity. And so I thought, why don't we just spend a number of weeks talking about how you can figure out how to get out of your failure, how you can grab yourself in the bottom of your fall, and you can come to a place of success. And there's one particular guy in this book that I read about, and he, I really relate to him particularly in my rise after my fall, and it's Moses. And, and he lived his life between two rivers. The one where he was left and the one where he was led. He, he lived his life 
between the Nile, where he was left, and the Jordan, where he was led. Scriptures tell us that he lived to be 120 years old. And interestingly, his life is separated into thirds. And, and his rise, as we know it, didn't come until the final third of his life. And so some of you know the story, but let me just give you a quick rundown of it. In the second generation of Egyptian slavery of the Israelites, the Hebrew population was growing so rapidly that Pharaoh, who was the king of the world, who people thought was God on earth, became so paranoid with the possibility that should a war break out that the Hebrews would join with their Egyptian enemies and they would attack from within that he orders all of the midwives to kill any Hebrew boy that was born. But the midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh and they let the boys live. So enraged by the midwives' disobedience, Pharaoh orders every Egyptian citizen to throw every boy born to the Hebrews into the Nile. It is in the midst of this genocide that Moses is born. His mother hides him for three months, but when it becomes clear that she couldn't hide him any longer, she places him in a basket and floats him down the Nile, who, uh, while bathing Pharaoh's daughter, discovers the basket, takes Moses, and raises him as her son. And so for the first 40 years of Moses' life, he grows up in the Egyptian court, being raised as Egyptian royalty, learning their history, their religious practices, and becoming elite in their fighting styles. He was, however, aware <clears throat> that he was not Egyptian, that he was a Hebrew. So he had this juxtaposition of learning the Egyptian way from his Egyptian adopted mother and learning the Hebrew way from his Hebrew birth mother, who Pharaoh's daughter had hired as a sort of nanny. And she, she taught him his Hebrew history, heritage, and a fear of God. There was a natural tension that had to have existed. That tension came to a head one day when, when he was about 40 and he saw one of his fellow uh, Hebrews being beaten by an Egyptian slave master. And in a moment of rage, he tries to take matters into his own hands and kills the Egyptian. This outburst would cost him everything that he'd known up to that point in his life. He's forced to flee Egypt and the clapback that Pharaoh would most certainly have sent his way, his flight took him across the Red Sea to a place called Midian where he meets Jethro, married Jethro's daughter, spends the next 40 years of his life working as a shepherd for his father-in-law where God taught him much needed lessons in patience, trust, and humility. In fact, the Bible says that he was more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. When he was about 80, after 40 years sitting in the Egyptian court being trained to be one of the greatest leaders on earth, and 40 years sitting in the wilderness learning lessons of humility, it was finally time for Moses to fulfill his calling. So God appears to him in a burning bush, says, I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you can lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And most of you know what happened next because you saw the prince of Egypt after debating with God about his ability and being reunited with his brother Aaron, who would be his spokesperson. They returned to Egypt. Pharaoh refuses over and over. He's pummeled with plagues before he finally lets God's people go. He changes his mind. He pursues them to the Red Sea, which God miraculously parts for the Hebrews, then closes on the Egyptians. And the children of Israel then spend the final 40 years of Moses' life wandering and whining in the wilderness in what's one of the most frustrating stories in all of the scripture, much akin to raising teenagers. But in that story, I see four things, four things that Moses was. Moses was confused, abused, 
and refused before he ever was used. Let's flesh that out. Number one, he was confused. He was confused about his identity. Huh. Was he Jewish or was he Egyptian? I wonder if you've ever been confused about your identity. I know I certainly have, especially after I became a Jesus guy. I was the most confused about my identity after I became a Jesus guy. I'd lived my life with one foot in my past and one foot in my purpose. One, on one hand, I identified as a Jesus guy who was supposed to be loving, joyful, peaceful, kind, patient, faithful, gentle, under control. But on the other hand, I didn't want to stop being a thug. I didn't want to lose the identity of being an ex-con, of somebody who, if you cross the wrong way, might cut you. I didn't want people to think I was soft. And so every time God tried to do something great in me or through me, I would sabotage it. I would trigger because I was arrested in development. I was confused about my identity. Have you ever been confused about your identity? Number two, Moses was accused. He, he was accused of murder. And in the midst of those accusations, he ran. And I read this and I wonder what would have happened if rather than running, he would have stood his ground and owned his mistake. Like it wasn't even Pharaoh who accused him. It was a secondhand accusation. And in his fear of what Pharaoh would do, he made assumptions. Hmm. Assumptions have a funny way of arising in the midst of accusations, don't they? Have you ever felt accused? Of course you have. We've all felt Accused, And just, uh, just as sure as I am that you have felt accused, I am equally sure that those accusations were secondhand. And that those secondhand accusations originated in hell. The book of Revelation tells us that Satan is our accuser. I wonder what would happen if you would stand your ground and face your mistakes rather than running. Some of you are on the precipice. You are in the midst of a mistake. You are in, on the precipice of a fall, and yet you are running. I guarantee you, because the book says it, you're gonna get caught. It says, be sure your sin will find you out. She'll find that website. He'll find that money you spent. They'll find it on your cell phone. Your boss is gonna find out, be sure, your sin will find you out. What would happen if rather than running, you would stand your ground and own your mistakes? Number three, Moses was refused. His own people refused to listen to him. They questioned his ability, his sincerity. They called him a murderer, a traitor, a sellout. Have you ever had people, like your own people, refuse you, question your ability or your sincerity, hold your past against you? Like, who are you to tell me this? Like, you're just a this, or you're, you're just a that. I remember when you were. But you know, even though they refused, Moses wouldn't relent. And he wouldn't relent because he knew the stakes were too high. He, he, he could see what they couldn't see. He knew that their lives depended on it. And guys, I get it, refusal stinks, it stings, but don't let your people's refusal cause you to relent because you can see what they can't see. You know that their lives, they depend on it. And so because of Moses' refusal to relent, finally, he was used. Used to usher God's people through the wilderness to the place of God's promise. He was used to lead God's people, watch this, through the same wilderness he had fled to. 
He was led to lead the people to cross the same sea he had to cross to get to Midian. He was uniquely qualified to lead them on this journey because he'd been where they were going. He knew the route and the requirements, the course and the challenges, the problems and the pitfalls because he'd experienced them in the rise after his fall. Because people who've had a failure or a fall but had the fortitude to pick themselves up, dust themselves off, own their mistakes, admit their failures and embrace the fall, come back stronger than before. And I wonder if that's you, like you're, you're here, you're, you're in the midst of it, you're, you're going through the fire, you're, you're wandering through the wilderness and you're running, you're fighting, you don't wanna own it, what, what would happen? Can I promise you that there's not a person in here who hasn't either fallen, is falling, or is about to fall? We're all in those categories. And what the enemy wants us to think is that this book says that we have to be perfect. Actually, this book says that none of us are perfect. Actually, the book, Jesus says, none of us are even good. So if you put yourself in that perspective and you say, not only do I not need to be perfect, I don't need to have this whole thing figured out that I am going from here to here. And in the midst of my problems, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my trials, and in my turmoil, if I would just own it. Like there's some of you who are in here today, I know this beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's some of you who are in here today, you're so fearful. You wake up every day with the constant weight of what would happen if people found out who you were. They're gonna find out who you are. Who better to to write the narrative You or failure. There are people in your life, I promise you, who if you go to them and you admit your problems, you admit the porn that you're looking at, you admit the money that you're stealing, you admit the conversations that you're having on social media, if you just sit down and you just say, bro, listen, this has been going on six years and I've, I've been shooting this and snorting this and smoking this and you've been hiding it, you, you think they don't smell it on your breath? You think that the mouthwash in your car works? <laughs> they already know. They just don't want to embarrass you. But at some point, the crap is gonna hit the fan enough that they're gonna do this and they're gonna walk away. And they're not gonna walk away because of your failure. They're gonna walk away because of your weakness. But I promise you that just as much as there are people who if you own your mistakes, they're gonna walk out on you, there are people that are gonna walk headlong into the wind with you, who will grab you by the arm and will say, you know what, let's go, bro. This, yes, yes. This is what I've been waiting for. It might just be two like me. I got canceled for so many speaking engagements, I wanted to change my cell phone number. But two guys grabbed me by the arms, said, we're not gonna let you fall, we're not gonna let you fail. And you might have two, you might have one. But I promise you, if you would turn around, put your shoulders back, bow up, and own your... There's some conversation, I know I'm going long, There are some conversations that need to be had this afternoon. There are some marriages that are about to be rescued today because of honesty. Give each other credit. Give each other the benefit of the doubt. Because I promise you, most of us in this room, we feel just like Moses. We're confused, we've been accused, we've been refused. But God, he wants us to be used. If you feel those first three, don't lose heart. Because not only are you on the precipice of a fall, you're on the precipice of a great comeback. 
because God works all things together for good of those who love him because there is a rise after the fall. Hi, friends. It's Sunny again. And I just want to say, Sean and I appreciate your faithful listening. And we hear all the time that many of you are sharing this. In fact, we've had a few people say, I tell everybody I know, specifically other pastors and leaders about this podcast. And so we may have shared in our early season two episode about the story of getting a retreat center that we're now going to call the reserve, uh, 20 acres, multiple houses, and the ability to house pastors and leaders, their families. We're going to basically say we're hosting the hurting. We're hosting the betrayed. We're restoring the betrayer. Uh, and so now we have a campus to do that on a, a 20 acre property to do that on as well as we'll continue to bring people into Green Bay and we provide um, help in the finances for that and the housing for that at times as needed. Also, we'll continue to go to people. We've done that over the last couple of years, flown directly to couples in crisis. That's been an ongoing thing that Sean and I, Pastor Becky, Pastor Barry have done. But what I wanted to ask you is that um, because this retreat center is $1.8 million, which actually for 20 acres, a massive house, other housing, uh, it's really reasonable. We just happened to find it in a great location. And the person who's selling it to us has a ministry heart. He's on the board of the church that we interned at coming right out of Bible college. It's just crazy, the God story. But we need to get $600,000 as the down payment. Now he's going to spread that over the first year. So it's 54,000 a month. Whew. Then after that, the 1.2 million that we will finance with him, those payments will start and that's in the 70 some hundred dollars. So $7,000 a month plus utilities and expenses, but that's much more palpable than 54,000 a month. But for this first year, we're grateful that we didn't have to come up with 600,000 to even begin work on the property. We already own it. We're already doing construction. But what I would ask you is if you would consider, and you may say, it's me. I have, you know, $100,000 put away for our church that we are going to start construction on something. Or you may say, I have $1.8 million at the church I lead and we were breaking ground. But I feel, <laughs> this is the crazy thing. I've heard some crazy stories about pastors who after having the money or praying for the money and they get it for something God's having them do, God told them to give it away. But then God exceeded their expectation and they came back and had eightfold, ninefold. I know of a church in Texas, this just happened. Uh, they gave a million dollars they had raised to break ground on a new property. And the, someone hanged had been at this conference with them and they had a roof that had caved in and it was a million dollars to repair it. And God told him, give the million dollars. Well, he did. And within a few weeks, they had a company come to them and offer them money for the land and to give them land they owned. And they basically were given about $8 million. 
from their million dollars they gave away. So I just know that when Sean and I even have given $1,200, which was our first big gift when we were first married at a conference and God told us, give everything. And we had $1,201 in our bank account, which was a ton for us. It was like our savings. We gave it, we got home and we had a check in our mailbox for $1,250. Now we made $49 on that, but it increased our faith. We made a lot of return on our faith and that investment and knowing God will never ask us to give that he doesn't have a huge plan. So I take this time to say, you might be the one that says, we're going to give you 1.8. You'll never have to worry about money as you do this ministry. You might say, we're going to give you 600,000 for the down payment so that you don't have to stress for the first year at 54,000 a pop as you build it out. Or you might say, we're going to give monthly or we have something else in mind. Thank you for considering it. Thank you for stepping out in faith and thank you for being a faithful listener to this. We appreciate you.